0: hey everyone this is prashant and i'll be your host for the vc10x podcast and today we have anuj mehta with us anuj is the india investment lead at Rise capital where he is leading the india investment strategy anuj has previous stints at kalari capital and entrepreneur first in this episode we talk about Anuj's story and how he started investing facts and figures that support india as a great place to invest most exciting sectors within india five m's they use to evaluate startups his biggest learning as a VC, and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey Anur, it's so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hi Prashant. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here. Looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, pleasure to have you on the podcast and to start things off can we first have your story and how you started investing sure so to share some background uh, about myself
1: right so um, I was born to a typical Gujarati business family of diamond merchants Uh, and when I graduated from IIT Kharagpur I was the first one in my family to even hold a degree now if I just split this statement into uh, you know two more points one is while I was, uh, you know, since I belonged to a typical, you know, Gujarati business family, so businesses, trading and stock investing, so mainly public equities, that was very normal, uh, you know, in my family. And I actually got exposed to the world of public equities way before the private markets. And as a part of a family office, uh, I used to track a lot of public, uh, publicly listed companies. And then fast forward to my uh, time at... Uh, you know, IIT Kharagpur, I never really had a mentor or a guide as to, you know, what else to do, you know, with my life. But however, being, uh, you know, a premier technology institute, so I was able to see many of my, uh, you know, many of my wingmates in my hostel, uh, you know, uh, talking about startups, talking about, uh, you know, the application of technology and what role it is going to have, or is it going to play in India's growth story. Uh, not only about, uh, not in the next few decades, but even centuries, right? And uh, that was actually like the inflection point. And uh, for me, that thinking about, uh, you know, how do I get involved into technology, uh, right? So I made up my mind, I'm not going to take up, uh, you know, a typical, uh, you know, core industry, uh, core industry job. And, uh, and and also to mention, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial uh, community that IIT Kharagpur had was super strong. Uh, there were a bunch of, uh, you know, companies which which had emerged out of IIT Kharagpur and looking at our, uh, you know, community of strong, uh, you know, alumni who uh, who had already launched startups and they were doing very well. Some companies like, you know, Innovator or, you know, Capillary Technologies um, or Porter, BlackBuck and all of those these companies, uh, like those names just to name a few, but there are many more companies. Um, so, Got got inspired, uh, you know, by that wave, and I wanted to get into, uh, you know, technology or the startup ecosystem in general. And I ended up joining uh, SoftBank-backed, uh, you know, Housing.com, uh, which was a which is a real estate, uh, you know, startup. And I joined the operations and strategy team. So uh, that really gave me a window, uh, you know, into the startup ecosystem. I got to appreciate the daily chaos that takes place, uh, you know, on the startup floor can appreciate what a founder goes through the, the, you know, the daily nuances, uh, you know, that are there in, uh, in running any startup. I was able to understand those, uh, you know, at a gra- grassroot level and, um, and then post my, you know, housing.com stint. I thought, why do you just restrict yourself to a singular company or a singular sector? Uh, You know, why not have like a bird's eye view of the entire Indian ecosystem? Uh, And if at all, there was an opportunity to work with not just one, but multiple companies simultaneously, uh, be uh, like, you know, be able to learn about multiple sectors simultaneously. And the answer to that question, uh, you know, after doing a bit of introspection was, uh, you know, venture capital. Now I had to figure out, you know, how I, you know, break into venture capital. And uh, this is back in like 2015, 2016. Uh, when, uh, you know, uh, that was like the first crazy wave of, you know, venture capital financing into India. SoftBank had also, uh, you know, made uh, a made couple of investments. And I was fortunate enough to get a break uh, into the seed investment arm um, of Kalari Capital, uh, one of the homegrown, uh, you know, early stage funds in India. So I uh, was fortunate enough to join that team. And the first project that was, uh, you know, given to me during my time there was... Um, to build out uh, the thesis, the investment thesis in the gaming sector, source opportunities and lead investments. And that actually came as a surprise. And um, yeah, and that's how I got, uh, you know, exposed to the world of, you know, venture capital. And then one thing just led to the other. And since then, uh, I've been associated with a bunch of accelerators and funds post that I was even a part of, uh, you know, Greylock partners-backed and founders-backed entrepreneur first which is a London headquartered talent investor. Um, I was responsible for launching their, uh, you know, India operations and helping them with the accelerator operations, as well as developing their funding networks in India. And, and then, yeah, so that was my exposure to the accelerator world. And currently, uh, you know, I, I'm associated with Rice Capital.
0: Absolutely. So now let's uh, continue this story with Rice Capital. So, uh, what's been your role at Rise Capital, and what are the kind of things that you are investing in, uh, being the India head? Sure. So at Rise Capital, our
1: investment thesis mainly revolves around emerging economies, right? And emerging economies or markets are super attractive to us, and the main reason being uh, that you know the world's <clears throat> uh, more than uh, you know fifty percent of the world's population or GDP creation. Uh, you know, seems to be coming from these emerging economies, and by emerging economies, I'm referring to Latin America, Middle East, Northern Africa, uh, India, and even Southeast Asia. So, uh, you know, uh, the point is that even though 50 more than uh, you know 50 percent of the world's population GDP, uh, you know, seems to be uh, in the emerging economies, but however, less than 15 percent of the venture capital money uh has actually flown into india and that is actually a huge imbalance and i would say uh that a lot of uh unallocation uh is there uh you know when we're talking about you know emerging economies and that is a massive opportunity that rise capital sees when it comes to the venture capital model and hence we are super uh you know long or bullish about uh you know emerging economies and <clears throat> And in current times, uh, you know, India is a geography that is there on almost every VC's, uh, you know, roadmap. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I've been fortunate enough to track India for rise capital, source opportunities, work very closely with the portfolio uh, in India of ours. And, yeah, so that's what has been, uh, you know, keeping me going as of now.
0: All right, that's great. And uh, you've you worked in India uh, through and through starting from uh, Housing.com, which was... Uh, what are the leading startups back then, right? Uh, and then coming on to the VC side, the other side of the table, and working with VC firms, Kalari, one of the leading VCs in India, and then Accelerator, uh, uh, Entrepreneur First, right? Which is pretty new in India, helping them uh, get a foothold in the Indian market. And now at Rice Capital, again, focusing on India. So how, how do you look at the Indian market and how has it evolved over the, maybe the past five years And where do you see it going in the next 5 or 10 years? Sure. So, uh, I would say India has been at an inflection
1: point. And if we just look at the first, uh, like firstly, let's look at the last two years, you know, during COVID time. And the number of unicorns that India produced is far more than the number of, you know, unicorns that were produced in China. It is important to note that, uh, you know, that less than one third of the capital compared to China actually went into India. And ideally, this shouldn't be the scenario because Chinese companies actually, uh, you know, have been building for China. But on the other hand, the Indian companies are actually scaling globally and they're they're building for uh, they're building for the world, right? And that is actually a very big, uh, you know, mismatch. And even on a even on an adjusted, uh, you know, GDP basis, uh, compared to USA, for every five dollars that has gone into U.S. Only one dollar has gone into gone into India, right? And uh, now to talk about you know the India's uh, India's GDP so far. So to give you some stats, um, three point five trillion dollar uh, you know GDP. This is the number for uh, you know this is the number for the GDP that India has been able to create in its entire history, right? And it is mind boggling to know that, uh, that an equal amount of GDP is going to get generated in the next five to seven years in India. Right. And uh, the major contribution for that $3.5 trillion GDP is going to come from the digital economy. It, it is very clear. Right. So I actually, we as Indians should, uh, you know, uh, like take a moment to you know fathom the fact that, you know, this is the scale at which, you know, India has been growing. Right. And now to compare the digital economy's contribution to the GDP, right? Uh, so let's say in the last seven years, since two thousand fifteen, uh, you know about two fifty, about uh, sorry, about one thirty billion dollars have actually flown, uh, you know, from global investors into India, right? And in uh, now, if you look at the digital economy's value creation, that is approximately two fifty to three hundred billion dollars. Now, if you take a percentage of the digital economy's contribution as a part of the total GDP, that is about, uh, I would say, about, you know, 5.7%, percent or 6%, uh, you know, when it comes to India. Now, if you compare that with China, if you compare that with China, it is at about 20%. If you compare that with USA, that is, uh, I would say, it is at about, you know, 35 to 40%. So you can imagine the untapped opportunity that lies ahead of us here, sitting here in India, right? So that is is actually, you know, one point. And uh, uh, if you see at the total valuation that I already shared with you, uh, you know, about like $250 billion, about a decade ago, that was almost negligible. And this value creation has come actually out of nowhere, right? And uh, from 500k jobs in the digital economy, in the next, uh, you know, five to seven years, we are going to see that number rise to about 5 million. Now, to share some more, uh, you know, facts uh, around, uh, you know, the Indian startup ecosystem. So, it enjoys a very strong, you know, uh, demographic, uh, you know, advantage. And that is that, you know, more than 600 million, uh, you know, Indians have an average age of less than 28. So, which is basically a very young, uh, you know, demographic and all of these individuals have actually grown up being exposed to internet, right? So, that is that is one point. The other one being the Indian talent pool, uh, you know, world-class technical, super technical talent, uh, you know, uh, coming out of Indian universities. And uh, they are super hungry, relentless, uh, you know, to build, you know, a company setting out of India. The brain drain problem also seems to have been solved. So, there was a time when everybody used to, uh, you know, leave India in search of opportunities. But we are actually seeing the reverse, you know, happening now. Um, many of, uh, you know, the Indians are located globally, they are actually wanting to come back to India. Or let's say they have even been impacted, the technical talent has been impacted by the recent layoffs at, you know, large corporations at, uh, you know, mostly the FANG. And, and they are actually, you know, wanting to start their own ventures, right? And that is a good opportunity for the Indian startup ecosystem. So, they're coming back to India and now launching startups, right? And, uh, yeah, and people in India, they are wanting to stay in India and not go, you know, outside India. So, uh, that is actually a very good, uh, you know, opportunity, I would say, uh, you know, sitting here in India. And uh, if we look at the uh, internet base, so uh, India has an uh, internet base of about, you know, 932 million. However, only 7% of the total internet users have actually made a transaction online or they have been involved in e-commerce. So you can imagine the under penetration that still exists in India. So there is such a large untapped opportunity, you know, ahead of us, uh, you know, And uh, of course, needless to talk about, uh, you know, the aspirational middle class, uh, you know, in India, Uh, many of them wanting to, uh, you know, uh, improve their lifestyle, their uh, earning capabilities have increased. And, uh, you know, and that will be a massive opportunity for the consumer startups, uh, you know, going ahead.
0: Yep. Yeah, totally agree to that. And uh, very, very insightful and uh, filled with facts and figures. Uh, figures answered there uh pushing uh pushing the fact that india is the next big thing and we've heard it on the podcast several times uh and and it's just uh pressed that and nailed it further right uh and now let's let's talk we are convinced uh very much convinced that india is the place to be uh now let's talk about uh what are the most exciting sectors uh as per your opinion uh within india yeah so, you know, I'm going
1: to answer this question a little differently. Right. And, uh, you know, to start off uh, with an answer to this question, you know, there are different flavors to different seasons and currently, you know, generative AI is the, you know, is the, you know, hottest, uh, you know, flavor of the season. And to be very honest, if you dig in a little deeper, there was nothing new about AI, actually AI was there back in 2017, 2018 also. And maybe the startups back then weren't getting funded at that pace. But now, you know, with the meteoric rise of OpenAI's chat GPT and its mind-boggling usage, you know, all investors and all entrepreneurs are suddenly, you know, talking about, you know, generative AI, right? And similarly, <clears throat> if you look at the COVID boom, so education or edtech, uh, you know, was super hot, uh, you know, during COVID time and all investors and all entrepreneurs chasing edtech. But now in current scenario, sitting here, you know, in 2023, if you talk about ed tech uh, you know, in uh, you know, among the investor community, most of them are going to shy away, you know, from education. At least that's been the sentiment uh, you know, in my network. Right? And and last year, you know, the, the cross-border B2B commerce or B2B marketplace uh, you know was the flavor of the season. So to be honest with you, uh, you know, these sectors. Uh, you know, being hot or being like an investor's favorite, that is also cyclical. Just like how the economy economy is also cyclical, and they keep changing. But now, at a personal front, I have been spending a lot of time reading about or uh, you know learning from my interactions uh, with founders uh, yeah. across uh, sectors like uh, you know Web three creator economy, uh, climate technology, and of course generative AI. Right. So these are the sectors where I'm spending. Most of my time, because I need to upskill myself in terms of what are the latest trends that are taking place among these sectors, right? So that's where most of my time uh, is being spent. But however, uh, you know, having shared whatever I shared, I'm super bullish, and I personally believe that the next wave of Indian unicorns will still come from the evergreen, not so fancy, uh, your perennial sectors like healthcare, fintech, SaaS and even gaming to a very large extent, right? So there's nothing new about these sectors, but the sectors that I mentioned to you in the beginning, uh, you know, they are like super new, so they will sound fancy to you. But I believe that the next wave
0: of, you know, unicorns will still come from these perennial sectors that I shared with you. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, now let's talk about how do you evaluate these companies? You have had a good track record of betting on the right companies. So how do you do do that? And what are the kind of things you're looking at when you're evaluating a deal? Sure. So, uh, you know, to answer this question, uh, let me
1: walk you through, uh, you know, a framework and uh, we call it the five M's, right? And five M's where each M stands, you know, for a certain parameter. And I'll walk you through these parameters. So the first one is management, where we are basically looking at, you know, the founders, uh, you know, who are working on, uh, you know, the startup. And uh, there we try to uh, you know a uh, deep dive into the complementary skill sets that these founders have or if there is an edge that they have in terms of the domain let's say if an individual has spent you know more than a decade uh, in a particular industry you know whether it's logistics or healthcare and if that individual is starting up in their respective industry so that individual definitely has an edge over you know somebody like you or me where you know we have not been exposed to those industries at a at a granular level and you know, the learnings that they would have uh, you know with regards to the macro as well as the micro trends will be far more superior uh, you know and uh, they may be able to implement you know those learnings into uh, you know the startup that they're working on complementary skill sets by what what i mean by that is let's say uh, if there are two two co-founders one of them takes care of, you know, let's say the business side of things, operations, strategy, sales, business development. And on the other hand, if there is a co-founder looking at the product and the tech side. So that's a really good, uh, you know, mix to have, right? Um, So that's one, you know, uh, I would say like a sub point within the management point. And the other one would be uh, whether they have had, uh, you know, past or previous operating experience. And how quickly they are able to, uh, you know, showcase, uh, you know, I would say outcomes, or results, right? Working on that particular problem. That's there. And then I think it's even a factor of, you know, intangibles. Like you speak to somebody, uh, you know, there is a very different kind of spark. Uh, you can sense that magic, uh, you know, while interacting with a certain individual. And you just feel that there is some wow element, you know, about this. There is, some, And this, that's why it's called intangible, right? So that is also a parameter, I would say, sub-parameter which, you know, gets factored into, you know, while evaluating the management teams so that during the first point and the second one uh you know uh to continue uh, you know with this response to continue right so the second parameter is the market opportunity or the market size now how large of a market uh you know that uh, the startup is actually going after the questions that uh you know i uh, like to ask myself is that you know can this startup <clears throat> uh you know produce uh like a gmv of like five billion dollars, maybe let's say five years or ten years down the line, that large of an opportunity, uh, and even to evaluate the competitive landscape, right? Uh, who are the other incumbents? How heavily funded? Uh, you know, these other players are in that particular uh, you know market, right? So that also needs to get baked in as a part of the you know evaluation. Third one would be metrics. Uh, you know, what are the financials that this company is seeing? what does the margin profile uh, look like and how quickly let's say if a company does not have uh, you know financial metrics but definitely there will be some operating metrics that or kpis that this uh, you know startup would have so it becomes important to evaluate you know how quickly uh, you know or let's say at a month on month level or a quarter on quarter growth or uh, you know that that startup is able to showcase whether it is like if it has if it's like doubling you know month on month that is really like a good metric to have right um and it could be any XYZ metric depending upon the sector and the business model that the you know that the startup has right so the third one is definitely metrics. The fourth one would be moat. Uh is there the question that we ask is is there an IB or a technology technology moat that this company has? How hard would it be for, uh, you know, a, a, another startup to actually, uh, you know, uh, build out a similar technology. Uh, that is like, you know, one aspect. Uh, does uh, does the company have like network effects? Uh, and uh, maybe at economies of scale, uh, like, you know, how, you know, how the margin profile is also going to like kind of, uh, you know, pan out and whether the startup enjoys the economies of scale, actually. Uh, so that also needs to get baked into, uh, you know, uh, the moat. Uh, if whether and let's say if we are evaluating like a consumer brand, how strong uh, you know how strong the affinity uh, you know for the brand is, right? So that is also a part of the mode evaluation. And uh, moving on, so the fifth parameter would be the multiple of money, right? It becomes very important to assess the valuation at which you know one is uh, you know investing, and for that it is always uh, I would say. Uh, You know, it's about uh, relative valuation. So we like to look at peers uh, and, uh, you know, the valuation divided by, uh, you know, the revenue or, you know, at what uh, valuation multiples did their peers raise. And uh, we actually even, uh, you know, look at publicly listed companies in that particular sector and see that in a steady state, uh, you know, what is the valuation multiple at which, uh, you know, that company XYZ is trading and then try to assess that whether uh, whether this is too expensive of a deal to get into or whether it is a cheap deal to get into and then from an investor's approach we try to you know gauge that um you know whether this opportunity can you know help us generate like a like at least like a you know 10 to 20x kind of a return or whether it is like a 5 to 10x kind of a return or whether it's like a 100x kind of a return you know whether if, like if you are investing at a pre seed or a kind of seed kind of a stage right? So, yeah, so I think the fifth parameter that goes into this evaluation is the multiple of money. So, yeah, so uh, uh, the 5M framework is actually, uh, I would say, like a combination
0: of these 5Ms, right? So, as I already shared with you. Yeah, that's great. And now let's, uh, since you mentioned uh, about valuations and multiples, so right now we are in between a downturn, right? And valuations are kind of getting tricky to what's the multiple that you should raise at what's the correct valuation and what was the valuation different for maybe two years back? Is it now calculated differently? So how should maybe founders uh, navigate the downturn and think about valuation at this point of time? Interesting question, right? So, I mean, I can have, you know, multiple, I would say cuts,
1: <laughs> you know, multiple cuts to this, uh, you know, answer. But, you know, I will tell you uh, that booms and busts, Right. They are a feature of this ecosystem. They are not a bug. Okay. And, uh, you know, many founders that I speak to, they tell me that, you know, what the the times that we're going through currently, they are abnormal. And I tell them, this is not abnormal. What happened in the last two years, that is abnormal that, you know, we saw like crazy amount of, you know, funding going into, uh, you know, the ecosystem and that was abnormal. So I would say this is like a reboot, <laughs> you know, that is taking place right now, and this is what is happening here. It is actually not abnormal. What took place in the last few years that was abnormal. And to evaluate any ecosystem, I go by the three V's, and by these three V's, I'm talking about volume, the velocity, and the valuation. So by these three V's, you can actually evaluate, uh, you know, how the ecosystem is moving forward, right? And by volumes. Uh, if we compare, let's say, the Indian ecosystem with the US ecosystem, it was only during COVID times we saw that uh, you know the valuations of Indian companies and the amount, uh, you know, whether it is at seed stage, series A or series B stage. So that quantum was, I would say, measurable, uh, you know, with the US counterparts. Right. And, and so that seemed a little uh, like that should ideally seem a little abnormal uh, you know, to, uh, I would say, to any, uh, you know, player in this ecosystem, right? That, that something seems to be off. How can Indian startups raise at the same valuation, raise, uh, you know, similar, you know, quantum. And to talk about velocity, I think some of the some of the investors, I would say, I, love I would say like, they just increase or ramped up the velocity. Like, we have seen some investors, uh, you know, invest in up to 100, 150 startups on an annual basis. And that number... Is far high, you know, that uh, than what they did pre-COVID. And to just take a step back, uh, you know, when COVID hit, nobody, nobody knew what was going to happen. Everybody thought that this world is going to end. And you know, leaving, leaving aside the first six months of the pandemic, right? And what actually happened in the next one and a half years post those, you know, six months? Nobody had ever anticipated. That, uh, you know, that it's going to get this crazy, Uh, you know, it's going to get this crazy and they're going to see all the 3Bs uh, really shoot up, right? And uh, now to talk about, uh, you know, to talk about the advice, uh, yeah, I I would say, uh, you know, the startups, they need to be super scrappy. They need to go into a cockroach mode and what I mean by cockroach mode is that they need to really work on their survival and sustainability, There is no shame in, uh, you know, reducing, you know, founder salaries. Firstly, founders should not, you know, if there is actually like a capital crunch, founders should reduce or not take salaries. Um, That's, you know, that's one aspect. And I've seen so many founders spend so much, you know, of their resources, whether it is capital or, you know, time, energy, sweat, you know, going into things which do not necessarily move the needle when it comes to growth right? So I think they need to relook at the strategy when it comes to, uh, you know, their bandwidth allocation, right? And they need to speak to the customers daily. They need to speak to their employees daily. They need to be super transparent, uh, you know, with all the stake- stakeholders, you know, involved uh, in the startup journey. And uh, yeah, and I think These are like some of the advices that I would have, uh, you know, uh, you know, for the startup founders, but to add on to this point, uh, uh, you know, I I personally, as an investor, I feel this is like a blessing in disguise, Uh, you know, the timing, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that we're going through, this is ideally the best time to build. Right. And now imagine yourself as an entrepreneur uh, you know, during COVID times where, you know, the TV's that I spoke about, you know, all of them were at their all time high. There's just so much noise. Right. And how can one really focus on really building, you know, building a startup. Right. And I think this is a good time where, you know, the noise has gone down. Uh, the the valuations are realistic. Um. And I think this is like a tough time, but I think the best of the entrepreneurs will, uh, you know, will really emerge, and they'll be tested, uh, you know, through the uh, through this time. And and as a, and actually, uh, you know, as a part of you know the COVID, uh, you know, the COVID induced, uh, you know, funding, right? So there there were a bunch of startups who raised a lot of capital at unrealistic valuations, right? So I personally feel that these founders should not. Uh, you know, uh, get caught up, uh, you know, in these mental shackles of trying to match up to the unrealistic, you know, valuations. I think it's okay to raise even at a down valuation. See, the end customer doesn't care about your valuation. Your employees who get like an X amount of salary on a monthly basis, they don't care about you know the the down valuation. They'll be happy if they're uh you know if the next uh you know funding round is closed, even if it is at a lower valuation. Uh they will be happier uh, and uh, maybe, you know, that will give all of these startups enough runway, uh, you know, to uh, build out sustainability and work on their unit economics, right? And there are broadly three different type of companies that we are coming across. One is, uh, you know, those companies who have raised a lot of capital but have not been able to achieve the PMF. And, right. So I think the question that they need to ask is whether they are working on a really large, you know, market opportunity. The second question that they need to ask is, you know, whether they have, a, you know, have a competitive advantage and the tech that they're building is not commoditized, right? There's some uniqueness or disruption. And and then if these, the these two questions, or, you know, the answer to these questions is a yes, then they need to think about whether they have enough capital, you know, for the next 15 to 18 months to survive, you know, this downturn, right? And, Let's say if the answer is no, or uh, if like, you know, the, the answer to the first two parts to this question is yes, but the answer to the third part, which is capital, uh, if that is a no, and if they're running out of capital, I think it is okay to raise at a, you know, at a down valuation. Now, let, let's say if there are companies where, you know, the founders, since they are working on this, you know, statement or, uh, you know, problem statement, and they're working on their offering, they get to know much more, you know, before, I would say in advance. And if they are able to identify that, you know, this company might never, or uh, you might never, re- uh, you know, achieve PMF. And there were a bunch of companies where they had a COVID-induced PMF. And now what has happened is that since that COVID-induced demand has gone away, so these companies with no PMF have gotten exposed. Right? And uh, let's say if all the stakeholders are of the agreement that, uh, you know, that this startup is not going to, you know, work out. I think it just makes sense to return the capital... Whatever remaining capital that a startup has, it makes sense to return that capital back to the investors because the opportunity cost of working, uh, you know, and spending time and bandwidth on something which is not going to reap actual, uh, you know, benefits or fruits, uh, you know, in the long in the long term, I think is uh, way too high than being caught up, uh, you know, working on something that might
0: not really, you know, work out. Right. Yeah, I totally agree to that. And uh, now let's move on to my last main question before we move to the rapid fire round. And this one is about what's something you've learned now uh, in your venture career uh, that you wish you had learned at the start of your venture career. Sure. Mm, so, I, so you know, the answer
1: to this question is empathy. <laughs> okay. It is more of an emotional or uh, I would say psychological in nature. Um and I tell you the reason for this. I think uh, it's purely because we as investors are just putting in capital, and they are also not our own capital. We are putting in LB LB capital, and we are managing it on their behalf. It's actually the founders, you know, who are going out there, uh, you know, uh, you know, working on their startups, putting putting in their everything, um, the time, energy, resources, blood, sweat. Even putting their relationships on the line, the family, uh, investing their own capital as well, right? And and the and and for us as investors, a startup investment is just, I would say, it is just one of the many portfolio companies. But for but for the entrepreneur, this is this is their everything. They have put everything on the line, like you know, uh, like to work on this startup, and. And we as investors are nobody to decide somebody's future. And all of these facts, actually, if you look at it, these facts should be humbling and not, you know, make an investor arrogant or elusive in a way that, Oh, you know, I- I'm sitting on, you know, some pile of cash. I'm an investor. Uh, and you know, I decide somebody else's fate. Uh, that is totally, totally wrong. Right. And, um, yeah, so that is one learning I would say, uh, you know, it has been empathy. Uh, you know, uh, which which I have learned. The other one being, well, I would say, uh, you know, building your own conviction. There are so many, you know, micro VC funds and there are so many other early stage, you know, funds that have, uh, you know, that have emerged. And they tend to piggyback on, uh, on uh, you know, somebody else's conviction. Let's say if like an XYZ globally reputed fund is investing in it, uh, you know, a micro VC would also, you know, be interested in tagging along. Right. And if you look at the portfolio performance or fund performance of even globally reputed, uh, you know, funds, even they have, uh, you know, not so well performing, uh, you know, portfolio companies. Right. So I think uh, it just doesn't make sense to borrow anybody else's conviction, rather build your own conviction. So even if it fails, uh, you know, you have nobody else to
0: uh, put the blame on. I totally agree. I agree with that. And Now, let's do the rapid-fire round. Uh, wherein I'll ask you five quick questions about uh, the fund, and you have to give five quick answers. Sounds good. Sure. All right. So, the first one goes, what are the sectors and regions you invest in? So, sectors, uh, I would say
1: we are sector agnostic. Anything that leverages technology in terms of geographies, all emerging markets, Latin America, Middle East, Africa, uh, India, Southeast Asia. Great. And what's the typical stage of investment? So at Rice Capital, uh, all of us have been operators or entrepreneurs in the past. We like to get our hands dirty. And uh, having said that, we like to get in at early stage. So whether it's seed, series A
0: or series B stage. Got it. And what's the typical check size you put in? Anywhere from 100k to 10 million dollars. Got it. And where can founders apply for funding in case there is a direct way?
1: So we are pretty approachable. Anybody can reach out to us on LinkedIn. Uh, I have even put out my email on my LinkedIn. So anybody can reach out to me even via.
0: Great. And where can our listeners follow you?
1: So we, uh, you know, being a venture capital fund, uh, you know, our focus has never gone into content production. So we are not a media, uh, you know, we are not a media company. And uh, I think the best way for listeners to follow us is to reach out to us, schedule a call, and then they'll get to listen to us
0: right that's great I'll make sure to put all the links that you mentioned in the show notes below uh, even your email and thank you for coming on happy investing thank you so much Prashant uh, for hosting me Uh, it's been a pleasure yeah likewise uh, pleasure hosting you thank you for time thanks bye